It's time for the What in the Podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight. We have four unsolved mysteries for you. Welcome to episode 29 of What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Mito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. And welcome to the What in the Podcast. I'm Adriana Comito, and my wonderful co-host husband, Kent Whittington, is with us tonight. We are um, unfortunately absent our other co-host, yeah. Tracy Hernandez, Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Uh, there was a mishap uh, at home, and so she everybody's alive and well. We're just she one couldn't make char- it. One of her charges had an owie that sent her to the ER. Yes. Um, so she's probably, and, she, and the way things are going at the hospital right now, she's probably going to be there for several hours. Sitting in her car while her kid, well, well, her charge is in the in the ER because only one person allowed at a time. Oh, no. Yeah, they don't like grantees in there. Or moms or aunts or other family. No family members allowed, apparently. Not in the current state of affairs. So, um, which can actually be really bad if the child is young. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's beside the point. We wish her all the best and her charge. Yep. And if she wants to share what happened next time, that's her business. So, mm-hmm. on to the show. On to the show. Well, tonight we've decided that we're going to do, uh, we're, we're all going to tell some stories here. We've decided to grab a few unsolved mysteries tonight to talk about. There's all theories on why they became what they were, but, but nothing has been proven or solved. Mm-hmm. There, are, Yeah, theories abound on all these, but no one knows for sure what happened. So anyway, um, we're just going to go right into it tonight, I think. You don't want to tell people do. how to reach us? They can, we can do that after the podcast. I don't want to annoy people just yet. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> um, shout out to Jerry and Tracy Polly. I'm going to give say yeah, a hello at Hill, Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yeah. Um, just want to say hi and wish you all the best. And uh, my brain's gone. There's more people I wanted to talk about, but it's gone. Oh, we're ha- late. <laughs> we're having a contest. Yes, Design contest. our logo. We have our logo. Mm-hmm. See if you can improve it. Do something new. We want to see a new doll face. Maybe a holiday theme. Doesn't even have to be Christmas. Could be Halloween. Could be Valentine's Day. Just just for fun. We're having a contest, and we may be able to get it put on a T-shirt. And get you a shirt if you're the winner. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a place that made you. St- may, uh, I might be able to get stickers through. Um, I'm still looking into that. Well, here's what. Here's how the contest is going to work. Basically, what we want is a picture of Dollface. You can do her up any way you like. Um, you, know, you can reimagine her. You can do her holding a doll that looks just like her, for example. Um, as I put on the website, maybe she's holding up the line at the DMV for some reason. Doesn't matter. Have fun with it. Yeah, have fun with it. Just play with it. You know, have her hang out with Bigfoot. Whatever works. Um, but all your submissions, we need them sent to whatinthepodcast.gmail.com. Uh, we're going to run this contest through December 29th at midnight. All, all of the... Uh, 29th or 30th first? Why, so, why the 29th? What's the cutoff date for that? Why that day? 
Why not the 31st? Why because, not New Year's Eve? Because the 29th will be the day you, me, and Tracy are all here to look over them. Oh. Yeah. See, I didn't realize that. There, I knew there was a reason. I just wanted to know. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so the 29th will be the cutoff. If you get them in before midnight on the 29th, they'll, they'll definitely be entered into our Did we podcast. post on the Facebook page? Yes, that's what I'm reading from right now. Okay. Do we have any responses to this at all? On the Facebook page. I haven't Not, been. I don't get on Facebook very likes, often. Sorry. Likes, stuff like that. And anyway. Ooh, I just I thought finish, of some. Let me finish Okay. First, okay. So the contest ends on December 29th at midnight. On the 8th of January on the podcast, we will announce the winners. Though we warn you, it may take a little bit for us to get them on a t-shirt, but we will get it to you yeah. eventually. It things take th- Those things take, uh, take some time. So but It'll be after the holidays, so hopefully you will see it fairly quickly yeah just yeah just bear with us if, if you win we will get the prize out to you yeah i i'm embarrassed I, I got most of my christmas gifts done early but because they're all customs they may be late Woohoo! Yeah, chop be. it up to me for being prepared and then hey, hey, stuck <laughs> you were prepared we ordered them early we even got them on a on a Good discount. A, it was a special offer. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it, it, it could be after Christmas, but everybody gets our gifts, sadly. Yeah. But they are coming. So they are coming, but we're going. If your friends or yeah. family of ours who are expecting gifts. Please um, bear with us. Yeah. We love you. <laughs> so anyway, after all that, let's just get down into it. Dear, you want to start us off with the first one? Sure. Okay. Sorry, i got to stop laughing because what I'm about to talk about is not funny. Oh, sorry. All these are unsolved mysteries, so there might be a lot of, you know, they're, they're Neither of these that I have in front of me stuff. are funny at all, so. You won't find anything funny on these times. No, it's uh, kind of weird, but that's kind of fun. The so. ones are at me in between, you know, stop the, stop the podcast, go get yourself something to munch on, eat an apple, whatever, have a drink. Have a, have a stiff drink. Yep. <laughs> and then go on to the next one. Sure, why not? It's a drinking game. No, I'm just kidding. We should make a drinking game. <laughs> This is not, not this not one, this, no. no. Not this one. Okay, what I want to talk about tonight is Havana syndrome. Havana. What is the Havana syndrome? It's. Well, I'm just just going to. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Havana syndrome is actually uh, set in Havana, Cuba. Uh, a, a, a medical sim- uh, signs and symptoms experienced by uh, the embassy staff of Canada and the United States in Cuba. Uh, in August 2017, uh, reports surfaced that the Canadian diplomat personnel in Cuba had, Amer- and Americans had suffered a variety of health problems dating back to as early as 2016. Um, uh, the U.S. government accused Cuba of perpetrating unsuspe- uns- uh, I can talk unspecified attacks causing these symptoms. The U.S. reduced staff at their embassy to a minimum in response. In 2018, U.S. diplomats in China reported similar problems as those in Cuba, as well as uh, undercover CIA agents operating in other countries who were negotiating with those countries on ways to counter Russian covert operations around the world. Subsequent studies of the affected diplomats in Cuba published in a journal, in the journal JMA, JAMA, excuse me, JAMA, in 2018 found evidence that the diplomats experienced some form of brain injury but did not determine the cause of the injury, co-author of the JAMA study considered microwave weapons to be a main suspect of the phenomenon. In December 2020, a study by expert by an expert committee of the U.S. National Academy, 
academias of science, engineering, and medicine commissioned by the State Department released its report concluding that, concluding that directed microwave radiation was likely the cause of illness among American diplomats in Cuba and China. So, okay. Cuba. In August 2017, reports be began surfacing that that American and Canadian diplomatic personnel in Cuba had experienced unusual, unexplained health problems dating back to late 2016. The number of American citizens experiencing symptoms was 26 as of June 2018. Uh, events. The health problems typically had a sudden onset. The victim would suddenly begin hearing strange grating noises that they perceived as coming from a specific direction. Some of them experienced it as a pressure or a vibration or as a sensation comparable to driving a car with the windows partially, oh, I hate that noise, partially rolled down. The f f f noise, I hate that thing. Uh, I can't say it either. Oh, it drives me nuts. And there are people that can't hear that. Well, I can only drive with the window with the front windows down if we're driving. Everything, if all the windows are down. That gets, I can hear that full, full, full. And if the back windows are almost down, oh my God, it's terrible. It's worse on the freeway yeah. for me. It's so much worse on the well, freeway. Just driving, just driving down around down town, down, down, I can down, have down, the down. windows front and back down. But if it's just one window down, it, I can't, it makes that noise. Anyway, sorry. We got off on a tangent again. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> where was I? The duration of these noises range from 20 seconds to 30 minutes and always happened while the diplomats were either at home or in hotel rooms. Other people nearby, family members, and guests in neighboring rooms did not report hearing anything. So the directional weapon sounds like it? Kind of. Sounds like it was something that was pointed right at, right at the individual. Or right at wherever they were. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily have to be pointed at them, just where they are in the general vicinity. Yeah. Impact on American diplomats. Some U.S. Embassy individuals have experienced lasting health effects, including one unidentif unidentified diplomat. I can't, gotta slow down who is said to now need a hearing aid. The State Department declared that the health problems were either the result of an attack or due to exposure to an as-yet-unknown device and declared that they were not blaming the Cuban government, of course not, but would not say who was to blame. Affected individuals described symptoms such as hearing... I lost my train of... Loss, uh, memory loss, nausea. Speculation centered around a sonic weapon with some researchers pointing to infrasound as possible cause. As a possible cause. So, you know, any... <laughs> any number of things could be the cause. So, <clears throat> excuse me. In August 2017, the United States expelled two Cuban diplomats in response to the illnesses in September. The U.S. De State Department stated that it was removing non-essential staff from the U.S. Embassy and warned U.S. citizens not to travel to Cuba. In October 2017, I didn't think we could travel to Cuba. No. I thought there was a, a embargo, not just an embargo, but I thought it was it was a no-travel zone for U.S. Well, citizens. Still got the CIA and the diplomats and stuff but like I, I, American citizens as a whole weren't allowed in Cuba, I thought. We'll have to, we'll have to look into it. I'm sorry. I, that was always my understanding. I don't know. Maybe things had changed. Stated that it was removing non-essential staff from the U.S. Embassy and warned... Okay. In October 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump said, I do believe Cuba's responsible. I do believe that going on to say, and it's a very unusual attack, as you know, but I do believe Cuba is responsible. Well, they very well may be. On March 2nd, 2018, but don't use them. Oh, no. Well, you wouldn't want to spark an act of war now, would you? No. Even though they might be uh, outnumbered, a bit, of a, a bit of a cold war going on there. 
Yeah, anyway, standoff. On March 2nd, 2018, the U.S. State Department announced it would continue to staff its embassy in Havana at the minimum required to perform core diplomatic and consular functions. Due to concerns about health attacks on staff, the embassy had been uh, operating under ordered departure status since September, but the status was set to expire. This announcement served to extend the staff reductions indefinitely. U.S. government investigations in January 2018, the Associated Press reported that a non-public FBI report found no evidence of an intentional sonic attack. A November 2018 report in in the New Yorker found that the FBI's investigation into the incident was stymied by conflict with the CIA. Of course, because, yeah. And the State Department... The CIA, hold on, I lost where I was. The state and the State Department. The CIA was reluctant to reveal, even to other U.S. government agencies, the identities of affected officers because of the CIA's, CIA's concern about possible leaks. Federal rules on the privacy of employee medical records also hindered the investigation. Well, yeah. Yeah, one part of the government doesn't want to share with the other because, oh my, the whole world might find out. Sorry. Okay, that's more useful. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the way it's the way of the world. It really is. It just it seems that way to me. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. But yeah, hip. I understand the HIPAA laws because something you're you're going through something you don't want the whole world to have your medical records. Yeah. Or know who you are because you got to keep. I can understand that part, but the other part, the two secret or you know high level security government agencies not sharing with each other. That's just a bunch of. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> time to keep going. Continue. Sorry, I have opinions. In January 2018, at the the direction of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, the Department of State convened an Accountability Review Board, which is an internal State Department mechanism to review security incidences involving diplomatic personnel. Retired United States Ambassador to Libya, Peter Bodie. Did I say that right? B-O-D-D-E, was chosen to lead the board. Okay. Impact on Canadian diplomats. On March 2018, MRI scans and other tests taken by a chief neurologist in Pittsburgh on an unspecified number of Canadian diplomats showed evidence of brain damage that mirrored the injuries some of their American counterparts had faced. In spring of 2018, Global Affairs Canada ended family postings to Cuba and withdrew all staff and families. Several of the Canadians who were impacted in 2017 were reported to still be unable to resume their work due to the, the severity of their ailments. The fact that as of February 2019, there was no knowledge of the cause of Havana Syndrome had made it challenging for the RC, Royal RCMP to investigate. I forget what it stands for. Royal Royal what? Real Canadian mouth Canadian police. Canadian mouth police. Okay. I know, I know, like, I know what that means. That's okay. In 2019, the government of Canada announced that it was reducing the embassy staff in Havana after a fourth Canadian diplomat, 14th Canadian diplomat reported symptoms of Havana syndrome. In late December of 2018, in February 2019, several Canadian diplomats sued the Canadian government, arguing that it failed to protect them or prompt 
promptly addressed serious health concerns. The government has sought to dismiss the suit, arguing in 2019 that it was not negligent and did not breach its duties to its employees. In court filings, the government acknowledged that several of the 14 plaintiffs in the suit suffered from concussion-like symptoms, but said that no definitive cause or medical diagnosis had been ascertained. In a November 2019 statement, Global Affairs Canada said we're continuing to investigate the potential cause of the unusual health symptoms. Of course, it's not our fault that we sent you out there and you got hurt. You know, it's not our fault. You can't blame us. We wouldn't know. We didn't know they were going to attack. They're not they're not hostile. And uh, sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, when I'm not working, uh, I feed horses for a friend of mine. Apparently, Adri goes with me and the horse she feeds is pretty darn high. Ha ha, ha 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 ha! Yes. Funny, funny, funny. Well, why don't you come down off that high horse and finish your story? No, it's not that. It's the, any every every government in the world. We're not responsible. We're not negligent. We didn't do anything wrong. Called that's that's why suddenly you yeah. stop having people in the country because there are sicknesses. But you know you're not going to help them health wise. No, no, no. I don't think that that that's not right. Well, to, to, they can't work anymore, but... <laughs> to help them would be to admit that there was a problem in the first place. Yes, but they they have universal health care up in Canada. Why the hell aren't they helping their people? Because with plausible deniability, it means the Canadian government is not responsible for what happened to these Bullshit! People. Sorry. <laughs> Same for the U.S. government, for that matter. And you, can, and you better watch your language, woman. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You forget this is a family show? Yeah, I'm starting to rethink this whole family show thing anymore. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, I lost my... Where was I? Anyway, Cuban government reactions. After the incident was made public, the Cuban foreign minister accused the U.S. of lying about the incident and denied Cuban involvement in the health problems experienced by diplomats or knowledge of their, their cause. I've lost where I was. Okay, there we go. The Cuban government offered to co- cooperate with the U- with the U.S. in an investigation of the incidents. It employed about 2,000 scientists and law enforcement officers who interviewed 300 neighbors of diplomats, examined two hotels, and also medically examined non-diplomats who had who could have been exposed. NBC reported that Cuban officials stated that they analyzed air and soil samples and considered a range of toxic toxic chemicals. They also examined the possibility that electromagnetic waves were to blame and looked into whether in, insects could be the culprit, but found nothing. Like, oh, yeah, the crickets. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, some of that noise that should sound like crickets. Yeah. The, okay, where was I? Oh, no, I lost my place again. But... Nothing they could link to the claimed medical sim- symptoms. The FBI and Cuban authorities met to discuss the uh, situation. The Cubans stated that the U.S. neither agreed to share the diplomats' medical records with the Cuban authorities, nor allowed Cuban investigators access to U.S. diplomats' homes to conduct tests. Well, from what... Okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. I have well, other... Not only that, but from my from something I read on this before, I don't know if it's in there or not, but from what I read is that when you were being assigned to Cuba, mm-hmm. you were told that you were going to be listened to. Well, yeah. The government, they place bugs in your phone, in your car, in your home, in your... They put it in the embassy offices, even. Right. Um, and they're going to deny this completely, but... At, at least the U.S. Uh, diplomats were told that this was going to happen. Right. 
So they even check to see if maybe the listening, the, you know, the bugs, or if they if they did sweeps for the bugs, if the bugs were causing these, you know, syndromes or whatever because they were malfunctioning or something. But anyway, let's go back read to where. Read on. Read on. Is it in here? I don't know. Okay, I don't remember. Read on and find out. <laughs> I just remember reading about that, and then there was the crickets. They thought it was crickets, but crickets don't hit sonic levels. In case you don't figure it out, folks, a lot of what we do here is scripted. <laughs> oh sure, why not? You know, we've got we've got notes. We've got notes. We've got our notes. Memories are terrible. We have horrible memories. Yes, awful. We're getting old, people. <laughs> so now the train's derailed yet again. Yes, I'm sorry, I lost. Please continue. Yes. So, um, at the request of the U.S. government, uh, government University of Pennsylvania researchers examined 21 affected diplomats, and the preliminary results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association (JAMA) in March 2018. The report found no evidence of white matter tracked abnormalities in affected diplomats beyond what might be seen in a control group of the same age and, and described a new syndrome in the diplomats that resemble persistent concussion. Oh, like football players. Yeah. Or wrestlers. Mm-hmm. They check for all that. Yeah. No, they had, they had, they have, they were getting constant concussions. Mm-hmm. So permanent damage. That's just horrific. Okay. Uh, and my vision's bad. <laughs> the st- okay. Bear with her, folks. I am brain dead. Doing her best. I am tired and brain dead. While some of those affected recovered swiftly, others had symptoms lasting for months. The study concluded that the diplomats appeared to have sustained injury to widespread brain networks. That's bad. Some experts criticized the study, arguing that there was no proof that any kind of energy source affected the diplomats or even that an attack took place. Subsequent study findings by the University of Pennsylvania team published in 2019 found that compared to a healthy control group, the diplomats who had reported injury had experienced brain trauma, advanced MRI scans, specifically ResF MRI, multimodal MRI, and diffusion MRI revealed differences in whose brain white matter volume, regional gray, and white matter volume cerebellar microstructural integrity and functional connectivity in the auditory and visuospatial subnetworks can but found no differences in experience in executive functions the study concluded that the u.s government personnel had been physically injured in a way consistent with the symptoms that they described but expressed no conclusion as to the cause or source of the injury, the New York Times reported outside experts were divided on the study's conclusion. Some say important new ev- some saw excuse me important new evidence. Others say it was it is merely a first step toward an exclamation explanation and difficult to interpret given the small number of patients. <sighs> Something was going on. So. I'm, oh, I'm still going. <laughs> People don't end up with concussion symptoms for no reason no. without being hit. Right. So, microwaves. In 2018 interview, Doug, Douglas H. Smith, a co-author of the JAMA study, said the microwaves were considered a main suspect. Underlying the phenomena, a 2018 study published in the journal Neural Computation by Beatrice Alexandra Golub rejected the idea that a sonic attack was the source of the symptoms and concluded the fact that the that the facts were consistent with pulsed radio frequency microwave radiation 
RFMW, exposure as the source of injury. Golem wrote that one, the nature of the noises reported by the diplomats was consistent with sounds caused by pulse RFMW via the fray effect. Two, the signs and the symptoms were reported by the diplomats match symptoms from RFMW exposure. Problem with sleep, cognition, vision, balance, speech, headaches, sensations uh, of pressure or vibration, nosebleeds, brain injury, and brain swelling. Three, oxidative stress provides a documented mechanism of RFMW injury compatible with reported signs and symptoms. And four, in the past, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow was subject to a microwave attack. Neuroscientist Alan H. Frey, for whom the Frey effect is named, consider the microwave theory to be viable. Some other scientists, including Peter Zimmerman and bioengineer Kenneth R. Foster, disagreed, considering the microwave hypothesis to be implausible. A 2018 study published by the journal Neurological Computation identified pulsed radio frequency microwave radiation, RFMW, exposure via the Frey effect as source of injury and noted that a microwave attack against the U.S. Embassy in Moscow has been historically documented. So they concluded basically that it was microwaves that yeah. affected them. So... Instead of a pulse. What we're talking about does not sound like infrasound or something else. It's more like a radiation-based attack. A radiation-based attack without the cancer. Okay. Right, right. okay. Um, we don't know what the... They might end up with cancer still. But, I mean, I don't know. It's... Well, you know what microwaves do, obviously. Yes, they cook things. Maybe the brain got cooked a bit. Um, but, no, I, I was trying to think. I lost my, my question here. Or my takeaway for a second there. I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> I doubt it. In December 2020, a 19-person committee of medical and scientific experts convened by the National Academy Academies Academies of Science, Engineering, I can talk really, you know, and Medicine at the request of the State Department published a consensus study report. An assessment of illness in U.S. government employees and their families at overseas embassies. Based on its review of the incident and injuries, the report concluded that overall directed pulse RF radio frequency energies, especially in those who, those with the distinct early manifestations, appeared to be the most plausible mechanism explaining these cases among those that the committee considered. Well, here's, okay, I, I, this is one of the things I thought about. See, if they did do this, then they... Then, then these two countries got exactly what they wanted. Yeah. And there was actually another country besides Russia that did it. They were talking about... Um, China. No, it wasn't just China. It was another It was another foreign country. Um, well, but if they did do this... I know about China and Cuba being involved. If they got what they wanted, less involvement by the U.S. at the embassies. Mm -hmm. You know, basically no U.S. involved to see what they're doing. Right. So... Anyway, just curious. That wasn't what I was thinking originally, but it's what popped into my head again. Okay, previous reported causes. Prior to 2019, some researchers posted, posited, okay, other plausible, or oh, I can talk, my brain's gone. Prior to 2019, some researchers posited other possible causes for the injuries, including ultrasound via intermodulation distortion caused by malfunctioning or improperly placed 
Cuban steroids, surveillance equipment, cricket noises, uh, and exposure to neurotoxic pesticides. That's not going to cause brain damage. Early speculation of an acoustic or sonic cause was later determined to be unfounded. Some had suggested that the symptoms represented episodes of mass hysteria. Yeah, mass hysteria that causes real brain damage. Uh, but the 2018 JAMA researchers considered a wholly unpsychogenic or psychosomatic cause to be very unlikely given the physical evidence of brain trauma. Okay, <laughs> the 2020 National Academy's report, I have no filter, consider chemical exposure, infectious diseases, and psychological issues as potential causes or aggravating factors of the injuries, but determined that these were not likely be to cause the injuries. Yes, I know, I have no filter. No. What pops into my head has to come out my mouth. No filter at all. Nope, no filter. Be warned. <laughs> Ultrasonics. In March 2018, Kevin Fu and a team of computer scientists at the University of Michigan reported in a study that ultrasound, specifically intermodulation distortion from multiple inaudible ultrasonic signals from malfunctioning or improperly placed Cuban surveillance equipment, could have been the origin of the reported sounds. Yeah, it could have caused damage. In January 2019, biologist Alexander L. Stubbs of the University of California, Berkeley, and Fernando Montalegrazi of the University of Lincoln analyzed a recording of a sound made by U.S. personnel in Cuba and released the Associated Press, released to the Associated Press. Stubbs and Montalegrazi uh, concluded that the sound was caused by the calling song of the Indies short-tailed cricket rather than a technolo technological device. Subs and Montalegra Z match the song's pulse repetition rate, power spectrum, pulse rate, stability, and oscillations per pulse to the recording. Stubbs and Montalegra uh, wrote the, that although the cause of the health problem reported to reported by embassy personnel are beyond the scope of this paper and called for more rigorous research into the source of these ailments included that the potential psychogenic effects as well as possible si physiological explanations unrelated to sonic attacks the conclusion was compared to a 2017 hypothesis from cuban scientists that the sound on the same recording is from Jamaican field crickets. Rudders reported that Jason, a group of scientists and physicists who advised the U.S. government, determined that the rare jungle cricket was the cause of the sound in Havana. Okay. Uh, psychogenic origin. In 2017, 18, and 19, psychologists Robert Bartholomew and some neurologists wrote that the attacks represent episodes of mass psychogenic illness. However, the co-lead author of the 29th study published in JAMA, Regina, Ragina? R-A-G-I-N-I? Regina. Regina. There's no A, so. Verma of the United University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine considered a wholly unpsychogenic or psychosomatic cause to be very unlikely. Okay. So they they ruled that out as well. Yeah, they there's like if you're gonna you're, you, th those things don't cause physical damage. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm still talking. What I thought was funny is how the heck did Jamaican crickets wind up in Havana? In Havana, Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? They're in other countries. They're not as strict with their uh, 
like well, I'm sure policies. Talking, I'm sure they're talking about recordings of crickets, not the actual crickets themselves. No, they said it was in there in Cuba. Okay. I don't know. Given the researchers' findings and State Department Medical Director Dr. Charles Rosenfarb testified that the department had all but ruled out mass hysteria as a cause. Well, yeah, that doesn't cause physical... Unless you're beating each other, it doesn't cause physical pain or physical damage. And I'm... Let's see. Okay. Should I keep going? You've got more to say. I've got lots more to say, apparently. At least on this. I've got opinions. Oh, so many opinions. Anyway. I got opinions about a lot of things, though. <laughs> Pesticides or infect infectious agents. I can talk. Really, I can. A 2019 study commissioned by Global Affairs Canada of 23 exposed Canadian diplomats completed in 20 May of 2019 found clinical imaging and biochemical evidence consistent with the hypothesis that overexposure to cholesterol inhibitors, a class of neurotoxic pesticides such as Pethroids and organ organophosphates, OPs, as a cause to brain injury. I guess that could cause brain injury. The embassies and other places in Cuba had been sprayed frequently as an anti-Zika virus mosquito control measure. Yeah, that could have been the cause. But why weren't other people affected? Why was it just the Could it just be genetic? Did anybody bother to check their genetics, I wonder? Well, the people that were affected, genetically speaking. You're talking about a bunch of diplomats? Only being affected? No one else. I don't think that's a genetic case. No, I don't think so But either, but maybe maybe the Cubans weren't affected by it because they have different genetic ba ba bases. I'm just saying, what, what, if, what if it only affected the diplomats because they're not Cuban? Not because it was... It was designed to do that, but because it only affects certain, the chemicals only affect certain backgrounds of certain people. I think it might be a little bit of a stretch to say this. No, I didn't. Only affect white people because I think it's kind of what you're reaching at. Not all Canadians are white. Not all U.S. personnel are white either. So that wasn't my point. So I was talking about Cubans. Maybe people that they talked to weren't affected because of that. Okay. Does that, that does, I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a possibility. It's a stretch, but it's something that they should have looked at, is my opinion. If you're going to look at something, look at it all. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I can't argue with that. <laughs> look at everything, yeah. Look at everything. Don't rule anything out until you do, mm -hmm. you know. The study concluded that other possible causes cannot be ruled out. I have problems, sorry. I know, I always do. The 2020 National Academy's study found it was... Unlikely that three that's acute high level exposure to OPs and or prithroid contributed to the illness due to the lack of evidence of exposure to those pesticides or clinical histories consistent with such exposures. However, the committee could not rule out the possibility, although Leah, let's not test on people to find out. Sorry. Although slight. That exposure to insecticides, particularly OPs, increases susceptibility to the triggering factors that cause the embassy personnel cases. The 2020 National Academy study also found it highly unlikely that an infectious disease such as the Zika virus, which was an epidemic in Cuba in 2016 and 17, caused the illness. Okay, how do I say that word? Gangzhou. Gangzhou, China. Okay. I'm awful. 
Yeah, and if it's not, I'm really sorry. Yeah, we apologize to those uh, Chinese-speaking people. I can't. I can't speak English, and I'm not good at it myself. Talk just talking. I can't, can't talk. Speak English. Don't expect us to speak Chinese. I trip over my own tongue on quite a regular basis. In early 2018, accusations similar to those reported by diplomats in Cuba began to be made by U.S. diplomats in China. The first incident reported by an American diplomat in China was made in April 2018 at the Gangzhou consulate, the largest U.S. consulate in China. The employee reported that he had been experiencing symptoms since late 2017. Several individuals were taken to the United States for medical examination. Another incident had previously been reported by USAD employee by a USAD employee at the U.S. Embassy in Uzbekistan, someplace in Uzbekistan, in September 2017. The employee's report was discounted by the U.S. State Department. Gee. Like I said, plausible deniability. Deniability. You're not sick. <laughs> Answering questions from the House Foreign Affairs Committee on May 23rd. 2018 Secretary of State Mike Pompeo confirmed that U.S. diplomatic staff in Gangzhou had reported symptoms very similar to and entirely consistent with those reported from Cuba. On June 6, 2018, the New York Times reported that at least two additional U.S. diplomats stationed in Gangzhou consulate had been evacuated from China and reported that it remained unclear whether the illnesses had uh, are the results of attacks at all. Other theories have included toxins, listening devices that accidentally emit harmful sounds, or even mass hysteria. In June 2018, the State Department announced that a task force had been assembled to investigate the reports and expand their health warning to all mainland China amid reports that some U.S. diplomats outside of Gangzhou had experienced the same symptoms resembling the brain injury. The warning told anyone who experienced unusual acute auditory or sensory phenomena accompanied by unusual sounds or piercing noises to not attempt to locate their source. Because, you know, that would cause more damage. Look for it and you'll, if you find it, it'll hurt more. Because if it is a weapon, you're getting closer to it. Yeah, that makes sense. No, I'm not. I'm I'm just, yeah, don't look for it. Tell somebody and make them look for it. Yeah. Um, Theories regarding... Culprit. US, the several U.S. State Department employees who consider themselves victims and some senior CIA Russian analysts, as well as some outside scientists, believe Russia is the most likely culprit. Russia had been accused by the U.S. State Department of using directed microwaves in the past. During the Cold War, the U.S. accused Russia of directing a microwave signal at the American Embassy in Moscow. And a 2014 NSA report raised the suspicion that Russia used an energy weapon to bathe the target's living quarters in microwaves, which caused, not, which caused nervous system damage. That sounds about right. The purported targets in the 2016-2018 events include, include un- undercover CIA agents who were working on ways to counter Russian covert operations. Also, the U.S. diplomat station in China and Cuba reported ailments were working to increase cooperation with those countries. Some CIA analysts suspect Russia was trying to disrupt all those activities. The Oh, maybe Russia did do the stuff in Cuba. It's possible. If they've got long-range weapons, you never know. Well, or operatives in those countries. You don't know. Russia and Cuba have a bit of a... Uh, been in bed together? Yeah, they've been in bed together before in the past, so... But the thing is, Cuba's the only one that's still communist. Russia's not supposed to be communism any, into communism anymore. 
not supposed to. Allegedly. Allegedly. So um, the New York Times reported in October 2020 that CII director Gina Haspel and State Department leaders were unconvinced that Russia is responsible even whether an attack occurred. However, some believe that there is a high-level and deliberate cover-up by the Trump-led State Department after a U.S. Office of Special Counsel investigation found a substantial likelihood of wrongdoing by state. Okay. That wouldn't surprise me either. I hate politics. We don't discuss politics, but... No, but your subject matter kind of brings it up. Yeah. He brought... He even said something was going on. Okay. If he said something was going on, how is he covering that up? Basically. Seriously, think about that. No, yeah. no, no. If well, basically, he, it's just everybody trying to put blame on something else or someone. Oh, it's always his fault. Well, maybe it's not just him. Maybe it's the people that work for him. They're hiding stuff from him. Mm-hmm. Not that I, I am not a supporter. Okay. I want to be very, very, I am not a supporter of any politician, but I want to, you know, that's what I wanted to say. I just, I'm not a supporter. I'm just playing devil's advocate here because he did at first say that they were responsible. Well, if you're going to cover something up, why say somebody's responsible in the first place? You know, not that I'm all for, you know, any candidate or anybody. I just, I hate politics. I, I used to like politics. I don't like politics anymore. Anyway, that's enough for politics. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. Well, that was an interesting story. Thank you, dear, for sharing that. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, seriously, thank you. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. You just—it it sounded sarcastic in my. It, it, you said it probably didn't come out sarcastic, but in my head it sounded sar- you like sarcastic. Always think my words come out sarcastic for some reason. I don't know why she does this, but every time. Because I think most people don't take me seriously. <laughs> Heck, I don't take myself seriously sometimes. Maybe that's why. <laughs> anyway, we're going to move on to another one. Since Tracy couldn't be here with us tonight, she had the forethought to uh, jump down a rabbit hole, grab something real quick, and pull it back out and email it to me. So well, no, she had the forethought to e- email her her her. She just sent her me notes. She hole, had yeah. she she did this work and was gonna give it to us, do it herself, but mm-hmm. she wasn't able to be with us tonight. So she's asked us to go ahead and tell her story, and I'm gonna do that. We right love now, you, Tracy. Yeah, we love you, Tracy. This one's for you. Okay, Tracy decided she wanted to do the Voynich Manuscript. You know what that one is? A little bit. Okay, well, let me get into it then. The Voynich Manuscript is an illustrated manuscript written in an unknown language. Dialect, yep. And thought to have been created in the 15th or 16th century. It's named after antiquarian bookseller Wilfred Voynich, who purchased it in 1912. Scholars and scientists have sought to decipher the text since the manuscript was first discovered. Since 1969, it's been housed in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. The Voynich Codex measures 22.5 by 16 centimeters, or 8.9 by 6.3 inches. So it's not that big, really. Uh, But it contains 102 heavily illustrated parchment folios, about 234 pages altogether. The manuscript is divided into six sections based on the illustrations, since, as of yet, the language has not been deciphered. Uh, botany, astronomy, and astrology, biology, cosmology, pharmaceutical, and a section of continuous text with decorations marking the beginning of short entries thought to be recipes. The illustrations in the botanical section, the largest section of the manuscript, 
consist of 113 large detailed colorful drawings of plants and herbs with text carefully written around the imagery. But if I recall, the plants and, and images are of plants unknown to us today. Yeah. These are I'm, extinct I'm, plants. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to that. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, it was just something that popped into my head. I apologize. No filter, people. I swear, no filter. <laughs> anyway, uh, the next <laughs> section is Sorry. the next section is twelve pages of astronomy and astrology drawings, arrangements of stars, the sun, the moon, with some pages featuring zodiac symbols. The third section contains drawings of nude women intertwined with and connected by tubes and what appear to be flowing fluids. The fourth section, Cosmology, is composed of drawings of nine medallions filled with stars and other shapes. The pharmaceutical... Yeah, See, I'm me. not the only one. Oh, I can never talk. The pharmaceutical section returns again to plants and herbs and depicts what are thought to be medicinal plants. Not true. You're quite eloquent most of the time. Well, thank you, dear. I appreciate that. Now I've lost my place. Eh, you'll find it again. I lost mine many, many times tonight. Yep. Anyway, this section differs from the botany section in that many pages include drawings of elaborate jars or bottles, and in some cases, many types of herbs appear on a single page. Though the images are more or less decipherable, much time, the effort, much time and effort has been spent by scholars and scientists determining the types of herbs and other plants, the text has proved otherwise. Numerous scholars, linguists, crypto cryptologists, and other intrigue parties have attempted to decode the unknown script with little to no success. It is not known where or exactly when the manuscript was created, though extensive research has suggested that it was made somewhere in Central Europe. The radiocarbon dating is assigned to the early 15th century. One long-standing theory that was debunked by radiocarbon dating conducted in 2009 was that it was written by 13th century English scientist Roger Bacon. The first owner of the manuscript may have been Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who reigned from 1576 to 1611. If Rudolf did indeed own it, one hypothesis was that he purchased it for 600 ducats, I think is what it says. Ducats, yeah. yeah. 600 ducats from mathematician and occultist John Dee. Though this theory has not been thoroughly substantiated. The notion that the book was purchased by Rudolf came from a letter written in 1665 by Prague scientist Johannes Marcus Marcy to his friend, an alchemist, and a, and a later recipient of the manuscript, Georg Barsch of Prague. The letter was tucked within the pages of the manuscript when Voynich purchased it in 1912. It is known for certain that the manuscript was owned by Rudolf's court chemist and pharmacist, Jacobus Horkiki de Tempenek, who left his signature deleted with ultra, detected with ultraviolet light on folio 1R of the book, I think is what it says here. The Voynich manuscript next owner was the friend of the letter writer Marcy Beresh, who passed the manuscript on to Marcy. In turn, Marcy, before he died in 1667, sent it to the scholar and Jesuit priest 
Athanasius Kircher. The book came into Voynich's hands in 1912 when he procured it from a Jesuit college near Rome. The bookseller coordinated a number of exhibitions of the manuscript, including one at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1915. He put forth great effort to have the text deciphered, recruiting University of Pennsylvania philosophy professor William Newbold. In 1921, both Voynich and Newbold delivered lectures on the manuscript, calling it the Roger Bacon Cipher Manuscript and saying it was discovered in a castle in southern Europe. The manuscript was purchased from Voynich's estate in 1961 by a New York bookseller, Hans P. Krauss, who donated it to the Binnicke Library in 1969. Among the many people who tried to decipher the text were renowned World War I cryptologists William and Elizabeth Friedman and historian Erwin Panofsky, intelligence specialists and scholars of chemistry, law, mathematics, medieval philosophy, and other fields. Several books, fiction and nonfiction, and dissertations have been published about the mysterious volume. Some critics consider the book to be a hoax perpetrated by Voynich, but the radiocarbon dated parchment, as well as focused linguistic studies like that of Marcelo Montemoro, which brought to light distinct linguistic patterns, seem to suggest otherwise. Well into the 21st century, the Voynich script has continued to be examined for clues to its meaning and origin. Been confounding scholars, basically cryptologists and sleuths for centuries. Crumbling medieval texts do not usually make for the subject of frenzied online debate, with the notable exception of the thoroughly bizarre, persistently impenetrable Voynich manuscript. The text, written in a language that is yet to be decoded, has confounded scholars, cryptologists, and amateur sleuths for centuries, as I said before. And last, a hullabaloo erupted over a Times Library supplement piece by historical researcher and television writer Nicholas Gibbs, who claimed to have solved the enduring Voynich mystery. The manuscript, Gibbs theorized, is a woman's health manual, and each character of its elusive language represents medieval Latin abbreviations. Gibbs claimed to have decoded two lines of the text, and his work was initially met with enthusiasm. But alas, experts and enthusiasts were soon poking holes in Gibbs' theory. Lisa Fagan Davis, executive director of the Medieval Academy of America, told the Atlantic Sarah Zhang that Gibbs' decoded text doesn't result in Latin that makes sense. The, the uh, most recent interpretation of the Voynich manuscript may not have been, been sound, but it's certainly not the wackiest theory about the text contents and origin. The manuscript has been attributed to everyone from ancient Mexican sculptures, sorry, let me try that again, it's been attributed to everyone from ancient Mexican cultures to, deal, to Leonardo da Vinci to aliens. Some say the book is a nature encyclopedia, others claim it's an elaborate hoax. So why is the Voynich manuscript proved so baffling, so polarizing over the years? It's divided into four sections, each of them very weird. As Michael LaPont explains in the Paris Review, the book begins with an herbal section featuring vibrant drawings of plants, but nobody's quite sure what sort of plants they are supposed to be, as you said. The theory on that is that they're, um, they're extinct plants, plants that used to be around that aren't anymore. Yep. Then comes the astrological section, which includes fold-out drawings of celestial charts that do not seem to match up with any known calendar. 
The astrological wheels are dotted with little drawings of nude women, and in the subsequent phenological uh, section, the nude drawings go wild. Illustrations depict naked women bathing in green liquid, naked women being propelled by jets of water, naked women supporting rainbows with their hands. Some scholars believe that one illustration shows naked women hanging out on a pair of ovaries. And finally, there is the pharmacological section, which includes additional, stop laughing, additional drawings of plants, followed by pages of writing in the manuscript's mysterious language, which has been dubbed as Buena Cheese. It almost sounds like you said cheese. Buena Cheese, well, it's Buena. I know, so I know, like I know, cheese. it almost sounds like cheese. Are you hungry, dear? No, not really. Okay. No, really, not really. No, okay. no. So the Voynich, uh, the manuscripts early R's also found it very confusing. The Voynich first appeared in the historical record in the late 16th century. As Davis writes on her blog, Manuscript Road Trip, Rudolf II of Germany purchased the book for 600 gold ducats, believing that it had been written by the 13th century English scientist Roger Bacon. It's then passed into the hands of Georgius Barcius, sorry, Barcius, I think it is, an alchemist from Prague, who referred to the book as a certain riddle of the Sphinx that was uselessly taking up space. When Barcius's heir, Johannes Marcus Marcy, inherited the manuscript, he sent it to an Egyptian hieroglyphics expert in Rome for help decoding the text. Such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Marcy wrote in an accompanying letter, according to Davis. The manuscript then disappeared for 250 years, only to resurface when it was purchased by Polish book dealer Wilfred Voynich in 1912. Voynich refused to divulge the manuscript's previous owner, leading many to believe that he had authored the text himself. But after Voynich's death, his wife claimed that he had purchased the book from the Jesuit college at Briscati near Rome. Some of the world's most prominent cryptologists cryptologists have tried and failed to decode the text. William Friedman, the pioneering crypto cryptologist, I want to say cryptozoologist. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> cryptologist. Known for, well, we deal with cryptozoology here on the show, folks. That's why I keep wanting to say it, I guess. Yes, Bigfoot. So anyway, the pioneering cryptologist William Friedman, known for breaking Japan's code during World War II, spent years trying to decipher the Voynich manuscript. According to the Washington Post, Sadie Dingfield. He ultimately concluded that it was an early attempt to construct an artificial or universal language of the priority type, according to the point of the Paris Review. Although the origins remain murky, Voynichese does not appear to be complete gobbledygook. In 2014, Brazilian researchers used complex network modeling to show that the text displays similar linguistic patterns to that of known languages. The researchers were not, however, able to translate the book. Big surprise. The Voynich has been carbon dated to the 15th century. The testing, which was carried out in 2009, showed that the parchment likely dates to sometime between 1404 and 1438. As Davis notes, these results rule out several individuals who had been named as authors of the manuscript. Roger Bacon, the English scientist, died in 1292. Da Vinci was only born in 1452. And Voynich came into the world long after the weird manuscript was written down. So wait a minute, what did you say? How long is the the carbon dating? Carbon dating dates it to 
54 to 15, oh, sorry, from 1404 to 1438, that's what it is. So, the parchment that it's written on is a lot older than any of these... People that were alive. With the exception of Bacon, who died in 1292. Da Vinci was alive, but he was born in 1452, which would be after the carbon dating also. So, anyway... Oh, yeah. Uh, that was just, I missed that no, part. That's, sorry. that's fine. So, the next part is alien authors, however, remain a viable possibility. William Shatner contributed dramatic narration to a weird or what episode about the Lynch manuscript. I saw that one. I found it a little intriguing, actually. Did you really? Yes, I did. The manuscript is available online for your sleuthing pleasure. Yale's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, which now holds the manuscript, keeps it locked safely in a vault. Should you fancy taking a crack at the ever-enigmatic Voynich, a complete digital copy is available online. But consider yourself warned. The Voynich rabbit hole is very, very deep. I actually looked at that. Did you? I did. For about five minutes. And you're like, heck no. Yeah. After looking at all, I, I, I looked at the pages, I looked at the illustrations. When I got to trying to decipher the words. Yeah. No. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> Problem is, I think, with the script, the way it's written, there's so many similar symbols and symbology in it that it's hard to keep track of what's what which makes the translation that much harder. Let's see, has Yale's mysterious Voynich manuscript finally been deciphered? A German Egyptologist believes he's cracked the code to the enigmatic 15th century illustrated book, but many others have made the same claim in the past and failed. The Voynich manuscript, an early 15th century document kept at Yale University and known as the world's most mysterious book, finally reveal its secrets. Let's find out. Any attempts to decipher the manuscript's unique texts, made up of a mixture of handwritten Latin letters, Arabic numbers, and unknown characters, have so far failed. Because of the many mysteries surrounding its content, it has featured in TV shows, books, music, and even video games. Now, after three years of analysis, the German Egyptologist Rainier Hannig from the Romer on Pelizius Museum in Hiddesham believes that he has cracked the code to translating the work and found the manuscript's language to be based on Hebrew. Countless decipherment attempts were made. Hanning writes in an article in German explaining his methodology. A lot of languages were proposed, such as Latin, Czech, or among other Nahuatl, spoken by the Aztecs, just to name a few. The word structure leaves only one possible explanation. The manuscript was not composed in an Indo-European language. From his analysis, Hannig concludes that the text must be a Semitic language, and given the European imagery of the book's illustrations, he narrowed the options to Arabic, Aramaic, or Hebrew, languages spoken by European scholars of the Middle Ages. After identifying a connection between certain Voynich characters in Hebrew, he managed to translate the first words and then full sentences. The actual translation of the Voynich book will need a couple of years' work, even if specialists in Hebrew language, who are well-versed in medieval Hebrew and the terminology of botanical and medical, plant, uh, medical texts, take over the analysis, Hank writes. The characters of the script, the pronunciation which one needs to get used to, the peculiarity and the vocabulary of the period will cause a lot of trouble even to a native-speaking uh, Hebrew, basically. Over the years, professional code breakers and scholars of various disciplines 
have attempted to solve the mystery of the Voynich manuscript. Some authors suspected that Hebrew was the language behind the script, including the authors of a computer algorithm-based study published in 2016. Although experts questioned the methodology used and no reliable translation was produced, others have claimed the manuscript to be a forgery and text and the text itself a hoax. I guess you know when you can't figure out what it is, just you. It's a hoax. Yeah, it's a hoax. It's not real. Page from the Voynich Manuscript, Beinecke Rare Books and Manuscript Library, Yale University, adding to the mystery. The manuscript's 240 vellum pages bear illustrations of plants, floating heads, signs of the zodiac, fantastic creatures, including dragons. Yay, dragons. Yay, dragons. <laughs> Tell Victor High Five. <laughs> Shh. It's a secret, I know. Shh. Castles, women bathing, and astronomical symbols. Scholars have used these illustrations to organize the manuscript's content into six major sections. Botanical, astronomical, and astrological, biological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. However, without the ability to read the text, its true context has remained elusive. Even the name of the manuscript's author remains a mystery. The Voynich Manuscript came to light in 1912 after... Wilfred Voynich, I'm just repeating this stuff here now at this point. I don't know belong to earlier. We already know it's only going there for a real second. Let me go on to the theories here. So anyway, let's get into it here. Tim Ackerman is quite sure that the Voynich manuscript was written in early Welsh, or Old Cornish from the 7th to 8th century AD, which would predate all that other stuff. Uh, Zbigniew Vanessa claimed that the Voynich manuscript was written in the Manchu language. Summary, okay, hold on here. Robert S. Broombaugh came to various conclusions about the Voynich Manuscript, many of which hinged on his interpretations of the short number columns in 149R, such as that it was a 16th century cipher, or later, a 16th century fake of a 15th century cipher. Either way, Broombaugh thought the alphabet was a uh, lossy number cycle, Cipher, sorry, with each glyph basically standing in for an Arabic number. The Burrishes claims that the Voynich manuscript was written down in enciphered Hebrew by Roger Bacon and that it describes some kind of alien technology from the future for creating DNA with sound. Jim Child, an Indo European linguist who has been studying the Voynich manuscripts uh, since the late 1970s, sees Voynichese as a pronounceable early German language. Uh, Jim Comages, I think is how it's pronounced, believes that the Voynich manuscript was a medical book written in Nahatl, the language of the Aztecs, possibly by Francisco Hernandez, and has written a book describing his claim. Eric von Daniken covers the Voynich manuscript in his 2009 book, History is Wrong, linking it to the Book of Enoch and a whole load of other things. Carol Dudek tries to argue that the Voynich manuscript was created by York House of Limits. Steve Eckwell posted two web pages on the Voynich as revealed to him by an, an excitant spirit in October 2000. Most of it is covered by his main web page, but there is an additional folding key 101 page here. Joseph Martin freely constructed what he believed to be partial decipherment of page 178R, but his claimed mangled Latin failed to convince any cryptologist. G. 
James Finn or Big Jim's theory that the Lynch manuscript is written in Hebrew and warns of the coming end time. William Friedman proposed that the manuscript is written in an artificial language, not unlike Del Gamo's uh, real character. Jacques Guy on the enduring life of his Chinese hypothesis. Beatrice Gwynn from Dublin thinks it's the 16th century hygiene manual written in left-right mirrored middle high German. Wayne Herschel is certain that the star disk on page 168 R3 of the Voynich manuscript is a hidden record of a golden plate with script writing given to Judas by Jesus Christ. George Herschel Jr. thinks that the Voynich manuscript is a strange kind of recipe book in Old Latin. Volkard Huth concludes that the Voynich manuscript came from around Germany and dates it around 1480 to 1500. Miguel Lehuken, a notorious internet poster, claimed to have encrypted the Voynich manuscript in a Google Groups post. Take that as you will. Sure. Erhard Landman posted up his theories on the Voynich manuscript in German here. There's a PDF for that, I guess, somewhere. And French and in English. Leo Levitov's Cathar theory. Jody Mott believes that the Voynich manuscript is readable as a vaguely polyglot Old Dutch. While well, Martin's assertion that the Voynich manuscript is not only number encoded rather than Brumbaugh, but also meaningless. Adam D. Morris suspects that the Voynich manuscript might have something to do with Hieronymus Rusner's Pandora, which is a version of the Book der Heligen Hypothekelt. Sorry, my German is terrible, folks. <laughs> William Romain Newbold sensationally claimed by the Voynich manuscript was written by Roger Bacon in a multi-layered micrographic cipher and described using telescopes to view galaxies. Ursula Popke has a kind of NLP-like transcendental interpret interpretation of the Voynich glyphs, wherein each glyph gets decomposed into constituent stokes, strokes and the kind of stroke harmonies that implicitly make up individual words are interpreted to tell a kind of raising or falling looping narrative. Chris Perry's assertion that the Voynich manuscript is a pretend foreign language fake. Nick Pelling's theories that Antonic Averlino is the author of the Voynich manuscript. Ricardo Hernandez Rivero posted that the Voynich manuscript was written in Old Spanish but with bits of Latin and English thrown in. Richard Rogers claims that the Voynich Manuscript is an ultra-terse Renaissance drawing language to describe presumably heretical symbols without actually drawing them. Gordon Rugg's hoax is a possibility theory which makes us a which makes use of a modified carding grill to simulate some but not all of the oddly instructed nature of the Voynich text. Richard Santa Coloma claims that the Voynich manuscript was probably written by Cornelius Drevel, or perhaps was a stage prop constructed by Francis, not Roger Bacon. A lot of work there for just a stage prop. Mm -hmm. uh, Dink Scribber has his own Kabbalistic numerological take on the Voynich manuscript in German, which probably won't prove very convincing to you unless you're already certain of the power of numerology. Edith Sherwood believes the Voynich Manuscript was created by a very young Leonardo da Vinci, even though he was left-handed. 
John Stipko Vallis Ukrainian theory. Left-handed, but wasn't he ambidextrous too? Couldn't he do things with both hands? Yeah, but he wrote left-handed. Actually, mm -hmm. he was able to write left, right, and left-handed. So I don't know. Why that well, see, the, he wasn't the one who could write with his feet too, right? No, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lionel Strong believed that he had deciphered the two pages of the Wenish manuscript. He'd reasonably, he had reasonable reproductions of using a base alphabetical local to a section of ciphertext, but with an offset cycling through the set. 01357975314474. More recently taken up by long-term Voynich researcher Glenn Clauston, sorry, Clauston, who still doubted by more traditional cryptologists, such as Jim Gilligan, mentioned in Mary Empirico's Elegant and Enigma. Mark Sullivan thinks that the number column on page 166R holds the key to deciphering the Voynich manuscript, and that the underlying language is Latin. Mandy Tonks asserts that not only was the Voynich manuscript faked, but that Wilfred Voynich also hoaxed the Marco letter that he claimed to have found with it. Wilfred Voynich was convinced, apparently even before he read the Marcy letter, that it was Roger Bacon who had created the object we now call the Voynich manuscript, but which Voynich himself called the Roger Bacon manuscript. And finally, Voynich theorists who wish to remain at least partially anonymous. Anonymous, sorry. So all sorts of theories abound there. Oh, yeah. Mostly Everybody's got an opinion about this one. Everybody's got an opinion. About a third of them say fake, though, from the sound of it. We, we put a man on the moon, come up with a theory of general relativity, split the, relativity, sorry, split the atom, and the still, list of breakthroughs and making the impossible possible goes on and on. And still can't figure this manuscript out. Man, you can see pretty much anything it puts to mind, right? Except this. Except this, yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps not anything for stored away in the Heineke Rare Books and Manuscript Library at Yale University in the U.S. is a book that steadfastly refuses to submit to our insatiable demand for knowledge and explanation. I wouldn't mind actually looking at the webpage for it, but I, I wouldn't even want to try to... I just want to look at it, just to see, you know? Yep. Wow, even Alan Turing took a job at this basically. Turning? Tur tuning? Alan Turing, who developed the Turing test. If you're familiar with that. Yeah, he was a really wartime cryptologist. Yeah, he FBI killed himself. Because yeah. he was being, was he killed by the, the English government? Or did he, I think he killed himself rather than go through chemical castration. I'd have to look that up. If he's the one I think it is, he was being charged with being gay. Poor gentleman. That's no way to go. No, but I think he killed himself. But I, I said I, I could be wrong. They had a movie about him in which I'm trying to remember the actor that played him. It was a movie. Um, but I knew about him beforehand uh -huh. because of something else in college. Okay. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. Sorry. That's all right. I'll shut up. So that's about it for the Voynich manuscript. I'm a little exhausted after that. So what have you got for us next, dear? The Children Who Went Up in Smoke. Interesting title. Go for it. It's a little sad, actually. Uh, a tragic Christmas mystery remains unsolved for more than 60 years after the disappearance of five young, young siblings. 
For nearly four decades, anyone driving down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia, could see a billboard bearing the grainy images of five children, all dark-haired and solemn-eyed. Their names and ages, Maurice 14, Martha 12, Louis 9, Jenny 8, Betty 5, stenciled beneath along with a speculation about what happened to them. Fayetteville was and is a small town with a main street that doesn't run longer than a hundred yards and rumors always played a larger role in the case than evidence. No one even agreed on whether the children were dead or alive. What everyone knew for certain was this. On the night before Christmas in 1945, George and Jeannie Sauter and nine of their ten children went to sleep. One son was away in the army. Around 1 a.m., a fire broke out. George and Jeannie and four of their children escaped, but the other five were never seen again. George had tried to save them, breaking a window to re-enter the house, slicing a swath of skin from his arm. He could see nothing through the smoke and fire, which had swept through all of the downstairs rooms, living and dining room, kitchen, office, and his and Jeannie's bedroom. He took frantic stock of what he knew. Two-year-old Sylvie whose crib was in their their bedroom, was safe outside, as was 17-year-old Marion and two sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., who had fled the upstairs bedroom they shared, singeing their hair on the way out. He figured Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jeannie, and Betty still had to be up there, cowering in two bedrooms on either end of the hallway, separated by a staircase that was now engulfed in flames. He raced back outside, hoping to reach them through the upstairs window, but the ladder he always kept propped against the house was strangely missing. An idea struck. He would drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb atop it to reach the windows, but even though he'd functioned perfectly the day before, they'd functioned perfectly the day before, neither would start now. He ransacked his mind for another option. He tried to scoop water from a rain barrel, but found it frozen solid. He didn't notice that his arm was slick with blood and well, five, excuse me, I lost track. I went too far. Five of his children were stuck somewhere inside those great whipping ropes of smoke. He didn't notice his arm was slick with blood that his voice hurt from screaming their names. His daughter, Marion, sprinted to the neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but couldn't get an operator response. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern, but again, no operator responded. Exasperated, the neighbor drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire fire alarm, a phone tree system, whereby one firefighter phoned another who phoned another, and so on. The, the fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m., by which point the Soder's home had been reduced to a smoking pile of ash. George and Jeannie assumed that five of their children were dead, but a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of remains. Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. A state police inspector combined, combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, attributing the case to fire or suffocation. But the Soders had begun to wonder if their children were still alive. George Soder was born Giorgio Sodu in Tula, Sardinia in 1895, an immigrant to the United States in 1908 when he was 13. 
An older brother who had accompanied him to Ellis Island immediately returned to Italy, leaving George on his own. Ooh. He found work on the Pennsylvania railroads carrying water and supplies to the laborers. And after a few years, moved to Smithers, West Virginia. Smart and ambitious, he first worked as a driver and then launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. One day, he walked into a local store called The Music Box and met the owner's daughter, Jeannie Soprani, who had, had come over from Italy when she was three. They married and had ten children between 1923 and 1943 and settled in Fayette, West Virginia, an Appalachian town with a small but active Italian immigrant community. The Soders were said The Soders were said one county magistrate, one of the most respected middle class families around. George held strong opinions about everything from business to current events and politics, but was for some reason reticent to talk about his youth. He never explained what had happened back in Italy to make him want to leave. The Soders planted flowers across the space where their house had stood and began to stitch together a series of odd moments leading up to the fire there was a stranger who appeared at the home a few months earlier back in the fall asking about hauling work he meandered to the back of the house pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said this is going to catch to cause a fire someday strange george thought especially since he had just had the wiring checked by a local company which produced it in but pronounced it in fine condition. Around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became all right when George declined, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke, he warned, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. George was indeed outspoken about his dislike for the Italian dictator, occasionally engaging in heated arguments with other members of Fayetteville's Italian community, and at the time didn't take the man's threat seriously. The older Soder sons also recalled something peculiar. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, intentionally watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Around 12.30, morning after the, chil after the children had opened a few... Around 12.30 Christmas morning, after the children had opened a few presents and everyone had gone to sleep, the shrill ring of the telephone broke the quiet. Janine rushed to answer it, and an unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was anxious laughter and glasses clinking in the background. Janine said, you, ha you have the wrong number, and hung up. Tiptoeing back to bed, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains open. The front door was unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the... Other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtain, locked the door, and returned to her room. She had just begun to doze when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof and then a rolling noise. An hour later, she was roused once again, this time by heavy smoke curling in her room. Jeannie couldn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, nothing. She conducted a private experiment burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chopped bones to see if the fire consumed them. Each time she was left with a heap of charred bones. She knew that the remains of various household appliances had been found in the burned-out basement, still identifiable. An employee at a crematorium informed her that bones remained after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house was destroyed in 45 minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> I was actually looking it up here. Uh, I've heard this one, yeah, many times over. cremation is right around 1,500 degrees. Um, to, to, to burn the bone 
uh, most of the house fires, on average, when they burn, is about 1,100 degrees. So there's 400 degree difference there. It's not enough to burn. This here home. says 2,000 degrees. Yeah. Uh, my internet search said 1,500. I guess it depends. Either, either, for two hours, though. It has to burn for two hours right, at that right. temperature. I was just saying either way. And even then, you'd still have bone fragments. Yeah. Because there's still bone fragments in cremains. Right. The fact that yeah, I know this is wrong, but yes. I um I, I did a lot of studying on um, embalming and stuff I've done like my that. Own research yeah, too. I know this. So and but cremation. It's just the fact a house fire would not burn hot enough to cremate. N- not even back then. It, if in order to burn that hot, it would have to take like radiation, something, or an explosion, something. Not just fire, but it would have to take an extra element of that heat to make it super hot, like hotter than two thousand degrees for a shorter time to burn. You know. Right. But does well, that make sense? Fire is not going to cremate no, it's not. So. So anyway. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, I was thinking the same thing. So hey, it's all good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the collection of odd moments grew. A telephone repairman told the Soders that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. They realized that if the fire had been electrical, the result of faulty wiring, as the officials reported, st- stated, then the power would have been dead. So how to explain the lighted downstairs rooms? A witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tactile used for removing car engines. Could he be the reason George's trucks refused to start? One day while the family was visiting the site, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jeannie recalled hearing the hard thump on the roof, the rolling sound, George concluded it was a napalm pineapple bomb, one of the type used in warfare. Dang. Then came the reports of... That's the son that was in uh, the military, right? Right. Okay. Napalm would be enough to do the job. To take bones out? Completely? Napalm burns very hot. That's true. In fact, you look it up, I'll keep going. Go ahead. When you find it, wave at me. Uh, they then came the reports of sightings. A woman claimed to have been have seen the missing children peering from pa- from a passing car while the fire was in progress. A woman operating a tourist shop between Fayetteville and Charleston came or some fifty miles west said she saw the children the morning after the fire. I served them breakfast. She told the police. There was a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court too. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photos in a news to, newspaper and said she had seen four of the fi- four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction, she said in a statement. I do not remember the exact date, however, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight and I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left the next morning. I did find it out, actually. Napalm burns at about 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 1800, not 2000. Right. Okay, according to this, it's two th- their house only burned for 45 minutes. Right. That's still not hot enough to burn and have no bone. No, but napalm still But it would have decimated the corpses, but there would be bone. 
There'd be something. Something. Yeah. Something to indicate someone was there. Wouldn't be much of something, but there'd be something there. There'd be something there, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we get distracted, folks, but we check the we check things out because we're curious, and we hope that you're curious, and and we try to be thorough, and we try, and we're not always thorough. We try our best, you know. We try to bring you interesting things. Anyway, let's keep going. Sorry, <laughs> I've lost my ah. In 1947, George and he sent a letter about the case to the FBI. And received a, pl- a reply from J. Edgar Hoover. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Hoover's agent said they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but Fayetteville Police and Fire Department declined the offer. Yay, I wonder what's going on with that. Next, the Soders turned to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley who discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. He also heard a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. Although Morris had claimed no remains were found, he supposedly confided that he discovered a heart in the ashes. He hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Tinsley persuaded Morris to show them the spot. Together, they dug up the box and took it straight to the local funeral director who poked and prodded the heart, concluded it was beef liver, untouched by the fire. Soon afterward, the Soders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that the content of the box had not been found in the fire at all, that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hopes that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to come. George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child. Her parents refused to speak to him. In August 1949, the Soders decided to mount a new search in this, the fire scene and brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institute, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should not or should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be at about 20. Since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still infused on this basis, the bones show greater skeletal mature maturation than one would expect with for a 14 year old boy the oldest missing soda child it is however possible although not probable for a boy of 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation yeah look at some of our friends kids i mean they're tall and and you were over six feet tall when you were in like grade school fifth grade fifth grade so i wasn't over six feet no but i was i'd reached my full height yeah, so, I mean, and, and think about that. In, in that age, most everybody else, even the, even the girls, were smaller than you. Yeah. So. These days, kids are growing faster. Faster, but faster. in this era, it, was, it, it wasn't but it that could common. No, it wasn't no. that common, but if the kid was big and... So, anyway, the, the vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to fire, the report said, and it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly carefully evacuated of the basement of the house. Excuse me. Hiccups are not fun. Noting that the house reportedly burned for only about half an hour or 45 minutes, 
so it said that one would expect to find the full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae. The bones, the report concluded, were most likely in the in the supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create a memorial for his children. That sounds about right. There was no scorching on him or anything. The Smithsonian report prompt, prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Soders their search was hopeless and declared the case closed. Undeterred, George and Jeannie erected the billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. They soon increased the amount to $10,000. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a, a convent there. Another tip from came from Texas where a patron and a borrower heard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone went... What were you? Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jeannie's. George traveled the country to investigate each lead, always returning home without any answers. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jeannie went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his 20s. On its flip side, a cryptic handwritten note, Louis Soder, I, I love Brother Frankie. Hold on. I love Brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35. She and George couldn't deny the resemblance to their Lewis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities, dark curls, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Once again, they hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky. They never heard from him again. And it gets weirder and weirder. The Soders feared that their the they that if they published the letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. Instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis and hung an enlarged version over the over the fireplace. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview. But we only want to know if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. He died a year later in 1968, still hoping for a break in the case. Jeannie erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to her home, building layer after layer between her and the outside world. Once the, since the fire had worn, had worn, since the fire, she had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do so until her death in 1989. The billboard finally came down. Her children and grandchildren continued to investigate and came up with theories of their own. The local mafia had tried to recruit him, and he declined. They tried to extort money from him, and he refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived the night if they had, and if if they lived for decades, if it... And if they had lived for decades, if they if it really was Lewis in the photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. The youngest and last surviving Soder child, Sylvia, is now 69 and doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. When time permits, she visits crime sleuthing websites and engages with people still invested in her family's mystery. Her very first memories are of that night in 1945 when she was two years old. She will never forget the sight of her father bleeding or the terrible symphony of everyone's screams, and she is no closer now to understanding why.
Sad. Yeah. So somewhere those five kids might still be alive. Well, maybe not now, but... Well, it's hard to say. This is 59. The kids were young. They could still be around. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Anyway, now comes to the last story we're going to tell tonight. And uh, I wanted to say this one because uh, it's kind of a kind of a weird story. Kind of <laughs> fun in some places, I guess. Uh, and nobody dies. I can tell you that right now. Nobody dies in the story at all. The only non-creepy, horrible thing in the whole night. No, this is so creepy. Okay, not horrible. <laughs> There's no death and maiming and murder. <laughs> no. Here's the last of our unsolved cases. This is the case called the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Where's Mattoon? Uh, we'll get to that, actually. Okay. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Anesthetic Prowler, Fritz the Phantom Anesthesis, or simply the Mad Gasser, was the name given to the person or people believed to be responsible for a series of apparent gas attacks that occurred in Mattoon, Illinois. There you go. During the mid-1940s. More than two dozen separate cases of gassings were reported to police over the span of two weeks. In addition to many more reported sightings of the suspected assailant, the gasser's supposed victims reported smelling strange odors in their homes, which were soon followed by symptoms such as paralysis of the legs, coughing, nausea, and vomiting. No one died or had serious medical consequences. Police remained skeptical of the accounts throughout the entire incident. No physical evidence was ever found, and many reported gassings had simple explanations, such as spilled nail polish or odors emanating from animals or local factories. Victims made quick recoveries from their symptoms and suffered no long-term effects. Nevertheless, local newspapers ran alarmist articles about the reported attacks and treated the account as facts. Sorry, the accounts as facts. The attacks are widely considered to be a case of mass hysteria. However, others maintain that the mad gasser actually existed or that the perceived attacks have another explanation, such as industrial pollution. Most contemporary descriptions of the Mad Gasser are based on the testimony of Mr. and Mrs. Burke Kearney of 1408 Marshall Avenue, the victims of the first Mattoon case to be reported by the media. They describe the Gasser as being a tall, thin man dressed in dark clothing and wearing a tight-fitting cap. Another report, made from some weeks later, described the Gasser as being a female dressed as a man. The gasser had also been described as carrying a flit gun, an agricultural tool for spraying pesticide, which he purportedly used to expel the gas. The first of the 1944 gasser incidents occurred at a house on Grant Avenue in Mattoon on August 31, 1944. Urban Rafe was awakened early the early hours of the morning by a strange odor. He felt nauseated and weak and suffered from a fit of vomiting. Suspecting that he was suffering from domestic gas poisoning, Rafe's wife tried to check the kitchen stove to see if there was a problem with the pilot light, but found that she was partially paralyzed and unable to leave her bed. Later that night, some contemporary accounts refer to the time as the morning of the following day instead, though. A similar incident was also reported by a young mother living close by. She was awakened by the sound of her daughter coughing, but found herself un unable to leave her bed. The next day, September 1st, there was a third reported incident. A Mrs. Kearney of Marshall Avenue, Mattoon, reported smelling a strong, sweet odor around 11 p.m. 
At first she dismissed the smell, believing it to be from flowers instead of the window. Or outside of the window, sorry. But the odor soon became stronger and she began to lose feeling in her legs. Mrs. Kearney panicked and her calls attracted her sister, Mrs. Reedy, who was in the house at the time. Mrs. Reedy also noticed the odor and determined that it was coming from the direction of the bedroom window, which was open at the time. The police were contacted, but no evidence of a, of a prowler was found. At around 12 a.m., Bert Kearney, Mrs. Kearney's husband, a local taxi driver who'd been absent during the time of the attack, returned home to find an unidentified man hiding close to one of the house's windows. The man fled and Kearney was unable to catch him. Kearney's description of the prowler was a tall man dressed in dark clothing, wearing a tight-fitting cap. This description was reported in the local media and became the common description of the gasser throughout the Mattoon incident. After the attack, Mrs. Kearney reported suffering from a burning sensation on her lips and throat, and was a that which was attributed to the effects of the gas. Initially, it was suspected that robbery was the primary motive for the attack. At the time of the incidents, the Kearneys had a large sum of money in the house, and it was surmised that the prowler could have seen Mrs. Kearney and her sister counting it earlier that evening. Local newspapers incorrectly reported this incident as being the first gasser attack. In the days following the Kearney attack, there were half a dozen similar attacks. Though none of the purported victims were able to provide a clear description of the prowler, and no clues were found at the scene of the attacks, the first specimen of physical evidence was found on the night of September 5th, when Carl and Beulah Cords of North 21st Street returned home around 10 p.m. After spending a few hours in the house, they noticed a piece of white cloth, slightly larger than a man's handkerchief, sitting on their porch next to the screen door. Eula Cords picked up the cloth and smelled it. As soon as she inhaled, she became violently ill. She described the effect as being similar to an electric shock. Her face quickly began to swell. She experienced a burning sensation in her mouth and throat and began to vomit. As with other victims, she also reported feeling weak and experiencing partial paralysis of her legs. Eula Cords later hypothesized that the cloth had been left on the porch in order to knock out the family dog, which usually slept there, so that the prowler could gain access to the house unnoticed. In addition to the cloth, a skeleton key described as looking well used was reportedly found on the sidewalk adjacent to the porch, along with a large, almost empty tube of lipstick. The cloth was analyzed by the authorities, but they found no chemicals on it that could explain Eulacor's reaction. The same night, a second incident was reported, this time on North 13th Street at the home of Mrs. Leonard Burrell. She reported seeing a stranger break in through her bedroom window and then attempt to gas her. Public concern over the alleged gassings quickly rose. The FBI became involved and the local police issued a statement calling on residents to avoid lingering in residential areas. In warning, the group set out to patrol for the gasser should be disbanded for reasons of public safety. Chief of Police C.E. Cole also warned concerned citizens to exercise due restraint when carrying or discharging firearms. During this period, there was also an increase in physical evidence of attacks being reported, ranging from footprints allegedly being discovered underneath windows to tears being found in window screens. By September 12th, local police had received so many false alarms, mostly from citizens believing that they smelled gas or that they had seen a prowler, that they reduced the priority afforded to gas reports and announced that the entire incident was likely the result of explainable occurrences 
exacerbated by public fears and a sign of the anxiety felt by women while local men were, on, were in war service. After the police announcement, Gasser reports declined. The only incident of arguable, arguable note after that date was the case of Bertha Birch, who claimed she saw a Gasser who was a woman dressed as a man. There are three primary theories about the Matu Mad Gasser incident. Well, didn't they find a lipstick on the porch? Yeah, I already mentioned that. So, yeah, no, I'm just saying, didn't I see? I pay attention. Or did I? Maybe I didn't mention that. You mentioned the lipstick. The handkerchief and the skeleton key. But then you mentioned they're the half, you are almost completely used lipstick. Right, right, okay. Or something. Something along those lines. So, so anyways, I was saying there are three primary theories about the Matu Mad Gasser incident. The first one's mass hysteria, industrial pollution, or an actual physical assailant. The events have also been written out by authors on the paranormal. Going into uh, mass hysteria, almost two weeks after the Mattoon attacks began, the local commissioner of public health, Thomas V. Wright, announced that there had undoubtedly been a number of gasoline incidents, but that many instances were likely due to hysteria. Residents hearing of alarming events and then panicking when confronted by an out-of-place odor or a shadow at the window, Wright stated. There's no doubt that gas maniac exists that has made a number of attacks, but many of the reported attacks are nothing more than hysteria. Fear of the gas man is entirely out of proportion to the menace of the relatively harmless gas he was spraying. The whole town is sick with hysteria. That was his quote. Mm -hmm. On September 12th, local police, local chief of police, sorry, C.E. Cole, took Wright's hypothesis a step further, announcing that there had likely been no gas attacks at all and that the reported incidents had probably been triggered by chemicals carried in the wind from a nearby industrial facility and then exacerbated by public panic. Wright and Cole's diagnosis was given further validity in 1945 when the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology published the Phantom Anesthesis, Anesthetist, sorry, of Mattoon, a field study of mass hysteria by Donald M. Johnson, which documented the Mattoon incident as a case study in mass hysteria. In 1959, his opinion was seconded by psychologist James P. Chaplin and went on to form the basis for several subsequent studies of the phenomena of mass hysteria. Most of the physical symptoms recorded during the Botetourt and Mattoon incidents, including choking, swelling of mucous membranes, and weakness or temporary paralysis, have all been suggested symptoms of, of hysteria. hysteria yeah. Some experts believe that the mass hysteria was fueled by the headlines in the Mattoon Journal Gazette. Mrs. Kearney and daughter first victims, which assumed there would be more attacks. Okay, possible. Personally, I don't really believe in the whole mass hysteria thing. Anytime, so, anytime there's an incident that, that panics the community, they always try to chalk it up to mass hysteria first. Anyway, uh, the next one would be toxic waste or pollution. On September 12th, the Chief of Police Cole told the press conference that odors and symptoms reported may have been the result of pollutants or toxic waste released by nearby industrial plants and speculated that carbon tetrafluoride or trichloralthylene, both of which have a sweet odor and can induce symptoms similar to those reported by purported gasser victims, may have been the substance released. In response to Cole's statement, Atlas Imperial the primary company implicated in this affair released a statement of its own saying that their facility had only five gallons of carbon tetrachloride in stock, which was contained in firefighting equipment. 
Atlas Imperial officials also denied that any quantities of trichlorophylline, an industrial solvent used by Atlas, could be responsible for sickness in the town, reasoning that it would have taken significant quantities of the chemical to sicken the townspeople, and that factory workers would have experienced similar symptoms long before anybody outside the factory was affected. At the time of the gassing, the Atlas plant had been certified as safe by the State Department of Health. Now we go to the actual assailant. Uh, after possible assailant. After analyzing events, some researchers have concluded that at least some of the gasser incidents were the work of an actual attacker who carried out a series of gassings as reported by witnesses. Other uh, suggestion would be that some writers, some writers on the paranormal have covered the events. Clark, in 1993, describes an illustration of the gasser from Lauren Coleman's Mysterious America. The artist depicts him as a not-quite-human, possibly extraterrestrial being. Now, I'm going to go on to something else that someone had uh, put in a theory about who they thought the gasser might be. And it's a pretty, pretty uh, plausible theory, but still unproven, so this mystery is still unsolved. Uh, basically, it says, for several weeks in September 1944, people in the town of Mattoon, Illinois, showed the symptoms of exposure to poison gas, nausea, vomiting, weakness, leading to near paralysis, lightheadedness, even spitting up blood. I heard that. All the victims reported a sweet, cheap perfume odor permeating their homes prior to the onset of sickness. Scott Maruna, a high school chemistry and physics teacher in Jacksonville, explains the terror in his book, The Mad Gaster of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. This case has long been cited in college psychology classes as a perfect example of mass hysteria. Occurring during World War II, when so many men were off fighting and so many women were left alone, the gassings have been explained away as the product of paranoia, panic, and delirium. Maruna dispels this idea, giving credence to many who claim, who came forward to report a small, a smell, sorry, coming through their windows at night and in some cases seeing a shadowy figure running into the darkness. Within 48 hours, four homes had been hit and the newspaper headlines blared, anesthetic prowler on the loose. The evenings were sultry, forcing people to leave open their windows or subsequent nights. On subsequent nights, several more homes were hit. Maruna's 100-page book presents the facts surrounding the case. Uh, the police investigations and similar events in other he then looks at the episode as a perfect example of hysteria. When police led people to believe the reports were mistaken, suddenly calls to the station dropped, possibly Maruna suggested, from sheer embarrassment. And perhaps because the police chief threatened to arrest anyone else who reported the gassing without submitting to the medical examination. This alone, Maruna says, deterred people from admitting they'd been gassed. I would imagine so. Mm -hmm. Who wants to be arrested over a, a report like that? Anyway, Maruna then examines 11 traits common to mass hysteria, providing factual details to subvert each of these characteristics. For example, most mass hysteria cases involve women, as did the Mattoon gassings. Maruna logically explains, though, that during the height of World War II, Mattoon would have naturally had more women in residence. Therefore, the victims would obviously include more females. In the end, Maruna presents his solution. He surmises the 60-year-old claim of mass hysteria and points to a real person as the culprit. Sorry, he dismisses the 60-year-old woman. 
Living in Mattoon was a town genius who could be found with his nose buried in books at his family's grocery store. Farley Llewellyn drank too much, kept a secret laboratory, and experimented with various chemicals. Once, an explosion from his lab rocked the neighborhood, Luna says. Farley, the obvious chemical genius behind the gas's synthesis, was the real gasser. In a fit brought on by mental instability, and years of pent-up rage against a town that would not and could not accept him, Farley tinkered and toyed with various organic solvents in an attempt to create for a suitable to create for a suitable weapon. Rooney even goes so far as to identify Farley's chemical as tetrachlorothin, a chemical with all the properties to induce the symptoms reported in the gassings. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon is an interesting, easy read that presents compelling arguments for Farley as the Mad Gasser. Hats off to Scott Maroon for an intriguing book. But I'm not sure I buy it. I mean, we're talking about an incident that occurred 60 years ago. And, uh, you know, you're, you're going off reports and incidences uh, by other people. But there's always that one person in town, right? Well, there's, well, there's always that, that guy. One yeah. person, yeah. doesn't mean it is that guy. It's just he's the likely Likely candidate. suspect or yeah. candidate, yeah. I don't know. I don't know, in wartime, how would you get your whole hands on gas, poisonous gas anyway, unless you made it yourself? Well, and how would you make it yourself in, in a wartime when it's, everything scarce, everything is scarce in wartime? Oh yeah, definitely. So, yeah, how the, I don't know. I don't know. I know nothing. That's no way to end this I know. <laughs> Just food for thought. Yep. Okay, that was a lot to take in. And we're sorry to keep you so long, folks. We hope you did enjoy it, though. Uh, anything you want to say before we go, dear? We hope you enjoyed it, mess-ups and all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry if we tripped over ourselves a couple times tonight. We're good at it. We are, we are definitely good at it. English is, <laughs> uh, English is not here. See, I can't even say it right yeah, now. Yeah, it's not a, about, I don't think it's our first language, no. It's just late and we're tired. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, again, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact us or have any input that you'd like to throw our way you can always email us at whatthepodcast.gmail.com and that's where we take our submissions right now for the contest yes for the contest we're looking for doll face pictures send us your pictures of doll face your drawings your art send us your personal art definitely want to give you credit for it but we're going to have the contest and then uh, 29th, and we'll have the submission information or winner by the 8th of, the 8th, G- of January. Yeah, a week after. A yeah. week after. So, winner gets a free tea. Yep, we'll, we'll do a t shirt just for you. Anyway, so you can contact us that way, or you can join our group at the What in the Podcast Facebook group on Facebook. Facebook! Yeah, Facebook, definitely. Where <laughs> you can find myself, Adriana, and Tracy. Occasionally me. We're all, we're all members there. You can always find us there if you want to talk to us directly through Messenger or something like that. Definitely. And, of course, lastly, click that little link on the podcast description that you're listening to right now. It's and they'll ask you to, to fill out a thing. They'll send you one email, which you do not even have to respond to. And you can start leaving your voicemail messages to us. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're not happy with what you send... Feel free to erase it and start again. That record button again, leave a message. 
and and don't get us wrong we like the people that have already given a uh, you know, given shout outs to us and stuff and like craig and craig especially because he's done it a couple times gotta mention craig on here we craig. love you craig well, and, 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 a, and a special shout out to craig, our craig friend actually told me that the, the recording works because we actually created an episode based off of one of his ideas so that tells you right there we, we listen, listen we pay we, attention we, if you've got an idea and that's good we're gonna run with it and we will give you credit for it as well so listen up and tell us what you think anyway i think uh adri's about to nod off here in her chair i'm about to do the same myself so i think we're gonna let it go now so to everybody have a good night get some rest have a good weekend enjoy your weekend we'll see you next week stay spooky folks one more thing before we go adriana wanted to take a minute to talk about a couple friends of ours go ahead uh our friends dean and kayla are going through some hard times and we wanted to send our love and our prayers to them because uh the one of their babies one of their their babies is having some problems they're fur babies and and just want to let them know that we're thinking about them that's right we're actually huge pet advocates in this oh house. yes and uh all walks i i even if you want to have a tarantula that's fine you can have one i don't want one but we support you, <laughs> we support you in your in in your pet ownership uh even uh, the one thing i won't ever have is a scorpion but i support you in your pet ownership <laughs> And one thing to remember, too, as Adri said, these are fur babies. These are not, pets are more than animals. Pets are members of the family. Just because we don't give birth to them doesn't mean they aren't our babies. They're our children. They're our children. So, so treat them that way. Never give, abuse them. Yeah, we are very, we're, you know, very big animal rights activists. So, so do not, know. if I ever hear of somebody abusing an animal, I will find you. <laughs> You laugh, but I, I, I have. It's just the way you said it. Oh it. no, no, I big hot button issue with me. I've seen people abuse animals. It's not, no, right. I it's not okay with me. So anyway, Dean and Kayla, we hope everything is okay. We hope uh, as soon as I hear back from my relative, I will let you know what she says. And we hope your baby pulls through. All right, have a good night. Night, everybody. What in the?